Well, good morning, Illuminate, all of you here in the room, those of you watching online. I am glad that you are here. My name is Hudson, one of our pastors. It is my privilege to bring God's word with us all this morning. But I have to shout out our fifth and sixth graders. They are finishing up summer camp up in Prescott right now. My wife, Brooklyn, and I were able to go and hang out with them all day yesterday. And I'm not gonna say this was the most important thing, but the red team, which was our Illuminate students, were in first place in all of the rec activities. And though it's not about winning, I was cheering for them rather fanatically. And so just continue praying for them. It is really cool to see fifth and sixth graders not only have a really fun time and get to make new friends, but begin to piece together this person of Jesus and also what Jesus means for them personally. So continue praying for them, especially today as they make their way back down the hill, that they stay safe and that they all remain healthy. For those of us here this morning, we are continuing our series in Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 25. What I've loved about the book of Genesis is we get origin stories. And not only the origin story of the world and of creation, but also the origin story of God's plan to redeem and restore all of creation, ultimately through the life death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, reversing the curse of sin that began in Genesis chapter three. And we see in Genesis chapter 12, God began to reveal this plan. He calls a man, Abram, he says, Abram, here's the deal. I'm going to bless you. And through blessing you and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And then he sets this plan into motion. And we see that this promise that God gave Abraham throughout the book of Genesis continues to be tracked through his descendants. And that's where we're gonna end up today, following the generations to come after Abraham. We pick up in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. These are the generations. This is a helpful literary tool we get all throughout the book of Genesis. And it tells us that we're moving on to something new now. We're gonna begin to trace the lineage of Abraham. We talked about Abraham and his son, Isaac last week. And this week will be about Isaac, but even tracking now the sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Now, what has been most shocking to me through the book of Genesis is that as God reveals this plan of his, it's been interesting to me that the all-powerful, all-knowing God of the cosmos would choose to start this plan with a family. And the reason why is because there's one thing that I've learned about my family and all families, and that is that every family, which you are all a part of, is dysfunctional. Our families are dysfunctional. Don't look at the person next to you. They already know that they wanna look at you as well. But here's the thing, right? Families are just messy. And so it seems strange that God would use a family because God understands how messy families are. In fact, the author of Genesis understands how messy families are. We get a few weeks ago, a brother killing his other brother in a jealous fit of rage and anger. We get two daughters getting their father drunk so they can sleep with their father and get pregnant by their father so they can have a family. And we get a husband giving his wife to another man so the other man can sleep with his wife because the husband is fearful for his life. Dr. Phil has nothing on the book of Genesis. This is a mess. And this week, the family drama is gonna continue. In fact, we are introduced to Jacob and Esau and they are twins. And if you know anything about twins or have the privilege of having twins in your family, you know the drama is only started. And I can say that because I'm the oldest of four and my youngest brothers are twins. In fact, I was joking with them a few weeks ago about the moment that our mom most regretted ever having kids at all. 
We grew up in a church a lot like Illuminate, lobby very similar, except we didn't have the lot. And so before or after service, just everybody's in the lobby. And the thing you know about twins is there's always two of them. This is important. So my one brother, we're in the lobby and he runs up to me, he's trying to fight with me. And they're really small at this time, we're all younger. And I just pick him up and hold him in my arms and he can't do anything but there's always two of them. The other one in his witful, sinful little mind realizes if I were to attack Hudson right now, he has no arms, no hands to defend himself. And so this brother runs up behind me and with both of his hands, grabs my pants and pulls them to the ground. (laughs) And as the people in the church begin to cry and scream and gasp, my mom has her back turned to us. She goes, that's the gasping and crying out that only happens when twins are involved and I have twins. So she turns around to me with my pants on the ground, my brother in my arms and the other brother pointing and laughing and the look on her face said, why did I ever have kids? And I share that because that's just the tip of the dysfunction in my family. And here's the thing. I love my brothers. I love my parents. We all love Jesus. We love each other, but we are sinful human beings that are trying to live in a close proximity and relationship with each other. And that's what happens in families. And so families are just inherently going to be messy. And so then we we ask the question, so why then would God want to use a family to start this whole thing out? And what we're going to see today and through this series is that God remains faithful to his promise despite dysfunctional families and sinful people. And it is good news for me, I hope it's good news for you as well, that God can use dysfunctional families and sinful people. We continue reading in verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Rebecca here finds herself in a similar situation as her mother-in-law, Sarah. We know about the Sarah and Abraham story as Sarah was barren. And the problem with being barren was that God said he would bless Abraham through his descendants. And then Abraham and Sarah are sitting there for years going, well, we can't conceive. So what is God doing with this promise? And we see Isaac and Rebecca here in a similar situation. And though the author makes a point of that in the Abraham and Sarah story, he moves on rather quickly here in the Isaac and Rebekah story, but it's still this promise that is in the midst of this questioning of will God really come through? And though the author skips over this pretty quickly, it takes them 20 years to conceive, waiting for this promise. What I also find interesting here, Isaac throughout scripture isn't talked about a ton. And what was even more striking to me as I was doing research over the last couple of weeks, a lot of commentators don't pay Isaac in the best light. They just paint him as this kind of passive guy. Yet here we see him doing something that I think is pretty significant. We see him praying for his wife. And I wanna challenge just all the husbands in the room, and I'm challenging myself with this as well. I think one of the things that we can do better, being the spiritual leaders of our homes, is to pray for and with our wives. And this is not to bring any guilt or condemnation or to judge you. Again, I'm speaking to myself here, but I know from speaking with tons of guys in our church and just guys that I'm in relationship that go to other churches that are trying to be Christian, godly men, we just struggle with this. And I actually think the reason why we tend to struggle with it is because the enemy knows how powerful it would be if we started doing these things. So I encourage you this week and moving forward, this is just an aside in the sermon but to just take that next step to be more faithful and praying for 
and with your wife, because I do think that it will change our marriages, our families, and our communities if we can do so. We continue reading in verse 22. The children struggled within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Something fun's happening here with this verb, struggled within her. This is the only time we see this conjugation used in all of scripture, and it is rightfully translated struggled within her. But more often than not, this verb has the literal meaning of smashing skulls. And I bring that up because I don't know if these twins are literally smashing their skulls together in her womb, but they are wrestling and fighting, and it is so aggressive that she is in pain and it causes her to cry out, if it is going to be like this, why is this happening to me? Somebody even says she's saying, if it's going to be like this, why would I even get pregnant in the first place? God, what are you doing? Some even suggest she's saying, why must I even live if it's going to be like this? This is some type of a pregnancy going on right now. These twins fighting within her. And this is really good that this happens. And I draw our attention here because this is going on she goes and seeks a word from the Lord. And this gives us the prophecy that sets up this entire series or this entire story today. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. So any confusion of the prophetic word, two nations being in your womb, it meant that she had twins. What's interesting is we see this prophecy given here play itself out in some ways, both practically, historically, and theologically. Historically, we know that from Jacob comes the Israelites, from Esau comes the Edomites. And we see that Israel at one point takes over the Edomites and the Edomites are slaves to the Israelites or servants to the Israelites. And so we see the prophecy coming true there. We also know in some theological ways is gonna play itself out, which we'll talk about today. But practically speaking, immediately, it tells us what's gonna happen between these two twins that were just born. Verse 25, the first came out red, all his body hairy or like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Jacob, his name literally means to seize by the heel because that's what he is doing to his brother when they are birthed. Another way to understand Jacob's name is to overreach. And we're gonna see that being a pretty good description of who Jacob is. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the author continues to show the opposition between these brothers, continues to draw the division between these twins. Esau, a man of the field, a hunter, a herdsman. He would have been a herdsman like his father and grandfather before him, and his father loved him. Then we get Jacob, and he's described as a quiet man. I think a better way to understand this as we look at the opposition with Esau would be he was a homebody and his mother loved him. So again, all this is setting the tone and foreshadowing the next event that takes place. And this is really where the story heats up. We get in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Edom in the Hebrew would have just sounded similar to the word for red. What we see is Esau the hunter comes in from the field and either he wasn't hunting or had a bad day hunting because he has no food to eat. Luckily, his twin brother had made some food that he might hook his brother up with. But Jacob being the overreacher that he is jumps on this opportunity. So Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. 
Esau said, I'm about to die of what youth is, of what youth use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So a birthright is exactly what it sounds like. It is the right to the firstborn of the family. Pastor Jason last week mentioned in this would have been a double portion of the inheritance. More significantly for our story, the firstborn in this birthright also would have carried the family name. Now that's a really important name when your grandfather is Abraham. And because of the transaction that just happened here, we now see the whole trajectory of the promise of God through the descendants of Abraham changing. Esau has now given them up and it is now Jacob who has the right to the name. The last verse in this story, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's rare that the author of Genesis gives us commentary. And the reality is Esau really messed up here. Through the rest of scripture, we see Old Testament and New Testament authors alike painting Esau in a pretty bad light because of this decision that he made. My title for today is Sibling Showdown. And in this showdown between the siblings, we see it end in a devastating way. And what we're gonna see in a couple weeks is that Jacob has not only stolen the birthright, but he's also gonna steal the blessing that was Esau. He's gonna deceive his father, Isaac, and get both the birthright and the blessing. He's gonna take off running in fear for his life that his brother is gonna take revenge and kill him. And despite this chaos, we have this prophecy that God knew exactly what was gonna happen before any of this played out. And we see that God ultimately is in control through all of it. This is a major event in the book of Genesis and sets the trajectory for the rest of the book because from Jacob, his immediate descendants are gonna be the 12 tribes of Israel was such this whole story in motion, even moving into the New Testament. And because we have so much commentary on this story from both Old Testament and New Testament authors, what I wanna do for the rest of our time is I wanna look at two passages in the New Testament that discuss this story, give us some commentary and bring some theological implications, but also bring some practical application for our life. So in Romans 9, six through 13, it says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So what's going on here is we know that not all the actual literal descendants from Abraham are part of the promise. Because I remember a few weeks ago, Isaac was not the firstborn of Abraham. In fact, Abraham has an older son. His name was Ishmael. But what happened was God said, through Sarah, you will conceive a son and this will be the heir of the promise. But Abraham, much like us, decided he didn't like God's timing. So he took things into his own hand and Sarah gave him her maid to sleep with and Abraham slept with her maid and had the son Ishmael. But though he was a literal descendant of Abraham, the promise was gonna come through the promise that God made to Abraham and Sarah. So this is what the apostle Paul here is starting to work through. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau I hated. In that very last sentence, there is a quote from Malachi chapter one. And what's going on in Malachi is similar to what's going on here in Romans nine. The Israelites are questioning if God's gonna stay true to his promise that was made to Abraham. Because what's happening here in Romans is the apostle Paul and the other church fathers and the apostles were preaching the good news about Jesus. And they were saying, in order to be a part of God's family, you have to have faith in Jesus' life, death and resurrection and call him Lord. And the Israelites are going, hold up. God said that we are God's family, that we are God's chosen people because of our Jewish ethnicity. And what made things even worse for them was Paul was saying, oh, and by the way, these Gentiles that the Jewish people did not like at all, if they believe in Jesus as Lord, they're also brought into the family of God. And to make matters even worse on top of that, he said, and by the way, not all of you Israelites, not all of you that have a Jewish heritage are part of God's family. It is only through faith in Jesus and what he has done in the new covenant that gets you into this family. And the Jewish people are absolutely frustrated with this. But what Paul's telling them here in Romans 9, because they're saying, well, if this is the case, then God's not being faithful to his promise. So God's either a liar or he's not actually God or he's forgotten about us and hates us. And Paul is going, guys, look, God has the freedom to choose who he calls for his purposes, regardless of human merit. The Jewish people being the older brother here are complaining that the younger brother, the Gentiles are getting in on this birthright. And Paul points out again here in Romans 9, who is to tell God he is unjust? Can the clay say to the potter, why did you make me like this? By no means. And this is good for all of us to realize because oftentimes in our lives, things start to happen and things don't go the way we thought. And we start telling God, I know that you're God of the cosmos and that you created the world and that you created me, but here's the deal, God, I know better than you. And if you could just get on my plan, if you just do things my way, things would actually go way better because I know more than you. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. And that's why this verse in Romans 9 is so important because we realize that God gets to decide. God gets to choose who he uses and what he uses them for despite our merit or our good works. And we actually see why this is good news in a second. So we ask, why does God call those whom he calls? in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We're gonna see this play out in a couple of ways. First, we see this play out in our salvation. I love the VBS video. I got to be Pirate Pete that weekend. It was an absolute blast. But what I loved most was their theme verse for the week. It was Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And this is a verse that separates Christianity from all other religions. It says this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. See what other religions say, other religions say, if you do enough good things, if you do these rules that we tell you to do, maybe eventually you'll work your way into a right standing with God. What Christianity says is that the God of the universe, knowing that we can never work our way to him, we can never be good enough. He actually humbled himself, taking on the human flesh, being with human beings, experiencing the things we experience as humans so that he could draw us near to him through his love, ultimately going and dying an excruciating, humiliating death on the cross in our place so that we might be saved, not as a result of our works, but through grace by faith. And I think this is important for us to realize as Christians, because I think we reread verses like this, but then we do something totally different in our lives. I was talking to a friend a couple of weeks ago 
And he's not quite a Christian yet. I think he's getting close. It was one of those late night conversations you talk about everything. We talked about creation and evolution. We talked about what the Bible says about LGBTQ. We talked about the authority and legitimacy of scripture, just all the different things. And as we're talking, we're going through these and I see these light bulbs start going off for him. I'm thinking, I think tonight's gonna be the night for him. Like it just feels like this is where it's going. And so we're talking and finally he just looks at me and goes, Hudson, here's the deal. I, th- I think I believe in Jesus. This all is making sense. The more we talk, the more that I see, it seems like what this Bible says, what the scriptures say are true. He goes, but I just don't think I'm ready to be a Christian. See, tomorrow I'm gonna wake up and there are addictions in my life. I'm just gonna be honest, I'm not ready to give up yet. He said, there are friends and relationships I have that I'm not ready to part ways with. I'm not willing to part ways with. He goes, there's a lifestyle that I'm living that I want to continue to live. And I thought this was funny. He goes, I just don't think I'm ready to be a Christian and spend all my time at church. And I was like, I don't know that Christians just spend all their time at church, but that's fine beside the point. But it started to break my heart because here's, here's what he was saying. I'm not good enough for Jesus yet. And the reality is, and what these verses teach us, is that it's not because we're good enough that God calls us. It's not because we're good enough that we have salvation. And for some of you, maybe even in this room, you're not a Christian yet. And even being in here, you're thinking, man, there is just so much junk in my life. There are maybe addictions or struggles or hurt or shame or guilt that you're feeling and you're saying, I just don't know that Jesus could deal with all of the garbage that's in my life. What I would say to you is, when I said to my friend, is you don't have to get rid of any of that stuff to come to Jesus. To come to have a relationship with Jesus, you bring all that stuff with you. Don't clean yourself up first. And it's not that God doesn't care about your sin. He cares about it very much. It's not that God doesn't care about you being righteous and pursuing holiness. We're gonna talk about holiness, but it's that you don't need that to enter a relationship. And oftentimes what happens is when we pursue Jesus, he begins to work all of those things out. I know that from my own life. When I came to Jesus, I still had addictions and things in my life. And I didn't even mean to give some of them up, just eventually I stopped doing those things. And I know that a lot of you have that same exact story as well. See, God's grace in our salvation is that we don't earn it. What's even more is that God's grace in his calling is that we don't earn it. For those of you that are Christians, I wanna encourage you with this next verse because right after Ephesians eight through nine, we get verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Second Timothy 1, nine says it like this, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If it were up to us to earn God's calling, none of us would be in the game. And this God's calling should not puff us up but God's calling should humble us to come before our savior, our King and say, we are your servants. We are here. We are glad that you have called us. Whatever it is that you have for us to do for your glory, for your will, for your purposes, we are here to do as humble servants. God chooses who he wants for his purposes. I sat under a pastor for many years. and He would always say, you were not called because you were qualified. You were qualified because you were called. You were not called because you were qualified. You're qualified because 
you are called. And if you are here today and you say that you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you are found in him, if you are pursuing holiness and righteousness and you have good counsel around you and you're praying and reading the scriptures, then I believe something about where God has you right now. I believe he has you there for a purpose. And if he wanted somebody else to be where you are, he would have somebody else there which means when you're leading your company, your business, your team members, I know that God wants you to be the leader because if he wanted anybody else, they would be there instead, which means he has you there for a purpose and a reason. You can step into that calling with confidence because of that. I know that if God wanted the people in your life, your friends, your family members, your coworkers, if he wanted someone else in their life, he would have somebody else in their life, but he has you in their life for a purpose and a reason for his glory. If God wanted somebody else leading your spouse, leading your kids, he would have somebody else leading your spouse and leading your kids. I believe he has you there for a purpose and that purpose is for his glory and his will and ultimately that more people would come to know and understand his grace in their lives. Now, just because God has the freedom to choose whom he wishes for what he wishes despite our merit does not mean we get to live passively and does not mean that we get to live in sin. In fact, I wrote this in the sermon notes for today, a theological understanding of the sovereignty of God, which just means that God's in control of all things, should lead to a Christian's practical pursuit of holiness in their life. We read this in Hebrews 12, this is the next text. And I said that these texts might seem to be at odds a little bit with each other, but I think when we realize what's going on, we see a beautiful picture of who God is and what he wants us to do. Says this in Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent that we sought it with tears. The context here of Hebrews 12 is not to make a theological statement. In fact, it's to take all the theology that's laid out in the book of Hebrews, which is a great book. We went through it months ago and to give some practical application. Now the author is urging the readers to do something. So we ask the question, why does God choose people? We laid that out to accomplish his will and to bring him glory. So what is his will? A lot of things. The Bible says a lot about it. Really simply put in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification, holiness, being conformed in the image of Christ is simply being obedient to God. And if we understand that God is working all things together to bring about his promises, if we know that we are called not based on our own merit, but because of his, then how much more should we pursue holiness in our lives. Now, holiness is not easy. Obeying God is not easy. I think we can all say amen to that. It is taking up your cross daily, denying your flesh to be alive in the spirit. But I would argue how much easier is it to stand firm in the battle that is pursuing holiness, knowing that the victory is already ours. I was reading an article. It was talking about police officers shot in the line of duty. And they were saying that there are these police officers who get shot and should die, but they end up not dying. They end up fighting through it. On the other side, there are people that get shot. And what happens is they're shot and mentally they go, I'm shot, which means I'm going to die. And they die mentally before they even die physically. And these other officers have these wounds. This one officer was shot in the face and should have died 
But in the moment, he was mentally tough enough to realize I can live through this. I can fight through this. He was newly married and had a young child at home. And he said, I'm going to get home to see my wife and see my child and miraculously live. Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist by any means at all. But what I do know is that our minds are powerful things and our mentality helps us when we're in the battle. And so as we look at pursuing holiness, being this battle, how do we strengthen our minds so that we can be mentally tough? So when temptation comes, when those desires we're trying to put away come that we can stand firm. And I would argue what gives us this mental toughness is keeping our eyes on Jesus, but remembering that we in fact have been given a birthright and an inheritance in Jesus. It says this in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The tragedy in our story today is that Esau, the firstborn, sold his birthright and his inheritance for a one-time meal, this cup of soup, gave up the things of God for soup. So I wonder today as we close, what is it that you're trading the things of God for in your life? What are you trading your inheritance for? What is that thing, that temporary pleasure that you've pursued instead of pursuing Jesus? What is the sin in your life that you continually allow to drive a wedge between you and God? Let's learn from this story today that though you maybe think that thing that you're holding on to is what you need to survive the day, I wonder if we're not sacrificing, giving up eternity for something we believe we need to get through the day. What have we learned today? We've learned that God by his grace has called those who are found in him for a purpose. And that through that grace, that grace should lead us to pursue holiness. And so as we approach communion today, I wanna ask you, what is something in your life, one thing, the next step for you to pursue holiness in your life? For some of you, it's gonna look like something you need to give up. For others of you, it's gonna look like something that you need to start doing, a spiritual discipline that you need to put into practice. And we do all these things, again, not because of our own merit or the fact that we're just good enough, but because we fix our eyes on Jesus and remember the inheritance that we have through him. Pastor Jason has said it every week, all these stories in Genesis point forward to Jesus. And Jesus, in fact, is the better older brother, the older brother who died in our place, who took the sin and the guilt that we had, that we were guilty of. He took it upon himself and he died on the cross because he is God. He rose again three days later. And in that resurrection, he said that he has victory over sin, death, and the grave. And we are found in him. We receive that victory. And that is what communion is all about, is remembering that life, death, and resurrection. But even more so, it's about remembering the union that we have in Christ. And all that means is he gives us what he has earned. Everything we have is because he is the one who earned it and we have received it as our inheritance in him. 
All of this, of course, by grace through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham thousands of years ago, and by God's grace and his power has preserved these stories for thousands of years that we may read them and be encouraged by them and see God's faithfulness over and over and over again through generation and generation. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and then I invite you to spend a few minutes reflecting on these things, maybe asking yourself that question, how am I gonna pursue holiness in my life? And after a few moments, I'll come back up and lead us through communion together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the better older brother. Jesus, that is in you that we have everything that we have and that we get a time to take communion to remember that. Jesus, I pray that you'd be with the hearts and minds of your people right now, that your spirit would speak and would move and would convict our hearts with how we could better serve and love you.